Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome Vet Gurus, Mark and Brendan here. Yeah, episode 335, Thursday, February the 22nd, 2024. Mark, I am. It's good to be here with you, Brendan. It's a wonderful day. Yes, well, it's a quite a hot, steamy day here, Mark. And as we're recording early evening, it's uh, got a little bit of an electrical storm. Um, so hopefully the we won't have any issues with the recording and the and the quality will be at our usual standard, I expect, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, and I've just cracked open a, and I think this is this sort of hot, steamy weather is one of the few times that I, I'm not really a massive beer drinker, but I'm I'm having a little, a little sip on a beer here, Mark, to try and ah. keep me cool while we, um, while we record. What about yourself? I'm I'm right there with you, Brendan. Oh, in fact, I was just um, I was just uh, thinking about how enjoyable the beer that I'm drinking at the moment is because um, it costs quite a bit to, to obtain up here in, um, in the remote far north of Australia where uh, transport of goods is difficult. Um, there is a considerable cost. So uh, I, I uh, just bought a case of beer for $110 um, and I can... Um, Ten Australian dollars, which is I don't know. Remind me, would well, that would be about at least double, close to yes, three times what uh, um, you could get it for the for at the uh, bottle shop in Melbourne. Yes. Um, so um so, but I'm enjoying it three times more than most people who buy it in Melbourne anyway. So fully justifiable. Oh well, that's a um, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So for what twenty four. 24 beers, I think. 30. In, in 30, case, 30. 30. 30 can. Uh, case. Okay. All right. That's um, that's um, that's a lot, Mark. That's a lot. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying it. I'm just looking online here. Um, yeah, we can. You can get some beer, a case of beer for thirty dollars upwards, Mark. Um, yeah. If you go yes. for something cheap. So, um, not that I go for something cheap, and not that you would, but yes. Um, but I'm sure it makes it all the more pleasurable, um, considering the the effort. Um, although the you know destroyed the the carbon footprint of that um, case of beer to get up to you, Mark. Um, so I hope it's very tasty. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it quite a lot, Brendan. Excellent. Well. Let's jump in off alcohol and into um, a big thank you to our listeners, vetgurus at gmail.com, the place to go, look at our previous episodes, join, um, become a subscriber, maybe even think about becoming a patron, like our recent patron, Mark, um, become a bug or something a bit more than a bug. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, become a guru. We're still waiting for a guru. Um, there's a guru level of sponsorship on our Patreon site, Mark. And um, I haven't jumped over there, but I think off the top of my head, it's uh, $50 a month um, would be that sponsor- sponsorship. And I think we'd only ever have one guru sponsor. So it would be great if we achieve that one day. Who knows? Um, but hello to all our subscribers, whether they support us financially or not. It, 
does help if they can. Um, and our three main sponsors, Mark, which are, who are, who are they, Mark? Oh, we've got uh, um, <laughs> Chemical Essentials, who produce F10, the yes. wonderful Chemical Essentials. We've got uh, uh, um, Special Animal Nutrition, Specialised Animal Nutrition, the Australian distributors of the outstanding range of Oxbow products, um, and Microchips Australia, our... Uh, um, uh, and, and Microchips Australia obviously uh, sell microchips, but um, they have a range of other... Uh, stalking gear. They've got all sorts of stuff gear. to track people. Um, <laughs> the only place to go, um, it's on the dark web as well, apparently, I think, um, on Microchips Australia, and I'm sure Doug will appreciate my little shout-out there. Uh, I'll be getting an email as soon as he listens <laughs> and probably an abusive phone call You know, well. Doug often tells me that uh, he listens to us while he's on his ride on mower, yes. um, zipping around the lawn, the considerable lawn he has to deal with, and... Um, and once or twice, he's nearly fallen off at uh, things that have been said. So we've got to be a little bit careful how we stimulate Doug. Yes. We, at least we keep him awake, Brendan. A bit, a bit of mowing rage, I think, happening <laughs> as we speak, Mark. Um, it won't look quite as neat um, this week, I don't think. Yes. So thank you very much to our three main sponsors, Mark. And we, um, our news item this week is a shout-out to one of our listeners, Mark, and an email. Do you want to... Um, oh, yes, one of our regular correspondents um, uh, sent us an email. Um, he enjoyed the... Uh, Nicholas. Nick enjoyed the episode on feeding tubes and he had a little suggestion, Brendan, which I sort of... Um, uh, it uh, uh, Seems obvious, but it's probably <laughs> something that we should have done previously. And, and interestingly enough, I've, I've just gotten... Uh, a macro diffuser and a number of the attachments to that uh, piece of kit which sits over the flash on my camera are attached with um, uh, a, a, velcro. Um, adhesive backed velcro and uh, Nick quite rightly suggests that resource could be used uh, is being used by uh, certain zoo vets uh, they use the velcro strips with adhesive backing to secure feeding tubes to the shell so it's sort of like doable undoable for use the feeding tube then uh, tape it up there um, I think it's a it's a winner uh, I like the idea and I can't wait to give it a crack myself Excellent idea, excellent idea. And he also has a little comment or, or a question mark um, addressed to us, um, and I think you'd love to take this one because it's a particular species you, you've had a bit more to deal with than I have. I've seen them, but not as much as you, and you just um, timely sent me a picture of you holding one uh, today. And his his comment was, I recently had a frilled, le frilled lizard come that's just under two years of age now he's in the us of a and the exam looked very normal i was wondering if this could be evidence of impending reproductive activity but i realized i don't know the age at which frilled lizards become sexually mature also do they experience any sort of seasonal dormancy this, this specific individual traces its lineage back to Papua New Guinea, according to the owner. And and we both we had a tiny chat about this before we went on air, Mark, and we both sort of assuming that the reason the lizard was presented was because of lethargy, I presume, or and yeah. or anorexia. So, what what's your comments, Mark? Well, 
The first comment is that oh, I love these bloody lizards. They and are great. Oh, they? they are spectacular. And and I seeing them up here in the wild is just one of the best buzzers. And I do stop regularly and help them off the road. Uh, they do this funny thing where about half of them will lay down flat pretending to be a stick and imagining that you can't see them. The other half wait till you've slowed down and then race off on their back, both yeah. hind legs bipedally at an incredible rate of knots and shoot up a tree. Um, so the ones that lay down, I do tend to get out and give a little tickle and get them off the road so there's no chance they could be squashed. Um, and occasional ones, uh, I do pull a few ticks off and whatnot. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're great to uh, be now, around. The way they run, Mark, um, the way they jump up and run is, reminds me very much like the way you try and cross the road after being at a hotel. <laughs> it is very similar. And a few beverages. Um, yeah, although you don't tend to jump up a tree afterwards. Um, you're trying to I'm avoid the cars. I've to. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, yes. so it, it's, uh, it's, it, it's fascinating. I've been trying to get a little bit of slow motion footage of it because it yeah. is pretty, pretty it's, cool. Yes. Um, and they, uh, they take off uh, um, very, very quickly. And uh, I'm... I'm even though I know they're going to go really quickly, when they go, it's explosive and it never ceases to amaze me. Um, in answer specifically to Nick's questions, they do become reproductively active about their 20th month. So up here in where I am, they generally mate about November, um, November, December, and the eggs are laid within a few days and they take about 90 days to hatch. So we've just got hatchlings popping up around the place right now, Brendan. Um, and those hatchlings will take about 20 months and that'll be their first breeding season. Um, publications by uh, esteemed reptile ecologist from Sydney University, Rick Shine, suggests that they probably live in the wild between six and 10 years um, and they get to be bloody big lizards. They're uh, they often measure about um, 75 or 80 centimetres. That's nearly three uh, three feet in the old scale, and they're pretty spectacular animals. Um, in captivity, my uh, experience is that they do we do get them, unsurprisingly, to live a lot longer, um, and so it's not unheard of for them to get to 15 years of age. So yes. this lizard would be um, just about that time where uh, reproductive activity would be beginning, Brendan. Yes, and uh, I expect that Nick be Nick, he will send a follow-up email and fill in us in about the consultation and any follow-up um, We do visits. enjoy we, hearing we tests, from him regularly. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I, Nick, you may be able to give us an idea on what sort of price these... Um, these lizards sell for in, the, in mm. America because I expect it would be not an insubstantial sum mark. It would um, they'd be quite pricey uh, because they they're not um, you know they're not a, a common pet here in Australia and um, even the price of them here um, not that I know off the top of my head wouldn't be it wouldn't be um, they're not inexpensive cheap more yes. more than a carton of beer. Um, um, yeah, they, unless you're up north, yes. Yes. They, they, um, seasonal dormancy. It's really, this is, oh, I love this stuff. Um, so the temperature up here where they live pretty much 
uh, in the summer sits an average of about um, 34, 35. And in the winter, it drops down to a chilly 31, maybe even 30 on occasions. Um, so it's always hot. Uh, so they don't uh, exhibit any seasonal dormancy associated with the temperature. But, um, but the water the, in the summer, where we are now, like it's rained every day and the ground is moist and the humidity is 100%. In the winter, the, the, uh, the dry season, um, humidity drops to sometimes as low as 60%, but sort of averages 75 Yep. And um, and those lizards, fascinatingly enough, do exhibit a little bit of dormancy. They tend to retire, uh, and it's um it's uh, related to um, height. Um, they tend to all get up in the trees and find a um a, a, a branch uh, that's nice and broad and got a little dip in it, or a hollow. And they'll spend most of the dry there with only coming out once or twice um, to get a drink if there is a wet day or um, uh, they generally are exposed to sun in those arboreal uh, rest positions. But yeah, the, the dormancy is associated with the dry and, um, and they go up in the trees. You don't find them anywhere on the ground. Yes. Um, and then they drop out at the beginning of, at the end of October, beginning of November. They have a few fights and a bit of reproductive activity um, and then they feed up for the rest of the wet. You see them all over the place chomping on the big grasshoppers up here predominantly, but any other insect they can. And a few plants too. Um, so, yeah, excellent lizards. Um, and uh, seasonal dormancy is associated with the wet and the dry and uh, they retire to the tops of the trees. Wow, what an extensive reply there, Mark. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and my my only comment on the first part of your answer there, Mark, regarding impending reproductive activity is um, I always like to have a bit of a a bit of a peek at their blood, Mark, um, with any reptile, um, and look at the sort of calcium levels and see if that's sort of um, trending upwards or, or fairly high. The calcium phosphorus ratios um, up up sky high i think gee is this a is this a lizard that's um with the females that's um going into that reproductive phase there mark so that's one and i'm sure nick already knows that but it's certainly something i always like looking at mark because it's a bit of a dead giveaway isn't it in um, a lot of reptiles that they're um that they're going into that reproductive phase would not even be surprised that um nick sends us the blood results yes yes Okay, I think we should get moving, Mark, on to, and no wonder we didn't have any news articles apart from Nick's email because we're 15 minutes in already, um, our main topic. And I thought we'd do a bit of a bit of a let's quiz, Mark, um, as usual, and um, we're going to have a bit of a summary of avian orthopedics, Mark. Um, so let's jump into it, Mark. Shoot. I, I, I was, I'll just start by saying... I really love avian orthopedics. It's one of the uh, the pleasures of doing avian veterinary work. Um, and the the one of the interesting things I find about um, doing this work is that um, it's sort of characteristic of a lot of unusual pet avian veterinary care that um, we 
followed the general principles of the topic, in this case, orthopedic uh, uh, correction, orthopedic repair. Um, we follow the general principles that most vets would follow with dogs or cats, but there's always some refinements or uh, uh, um, uh, um, adjustments for the yes. idiosyncrasies of the species. Um, and avian patients have a couple of those, so there is some just things to be aware of. Yes. Uh, well, it's exactly like I always say with exotics and wildlife, Mark, um, what is the same and what is different? Um, so what is the same is the same approach to the general principles of orthopaedic repair, as you mentioned, and we'll, we'll highlight some of the refinements, as you, as you, as you have put it, um, with our avian patients, Mark. So what, let's talk about dealing with really tiny birds, Mark. What do we do with the little tiny ones that have... Um, orthopedic issues going on? Well, I always like to talk about these first because they are a common worry. Um, and, the you know, we're talking about birds that might be um, as small as seven or eight grams, 12 grams through to 15 grams, finches and canaries. Um, and, you know, some of these birds are so small that, um, that uh, the even with... Uh, microscopic surgery um, you're still going to cause as much damage as you resolve um, if you to contemplate surgery so oftentimes with these guys uh, we even get to the point where as long as we can provide adequate analgesia um, we might be talking about uh, particularly for bones that are non-weight bearing we might be talking about cage rest as a uh, suitable resolution to these problems yes um, and, and i think you you have a have an additional sort of follow-on point regarding that mark as far as far as um, how we deal with these um these these breaks that are that are reasonably well aligned or, or can be aligned um closely um under an anesthetic what am i going to say <laughs> Well, we're back, Mark. We had a bit of a break there. As I mentioned, we've had some stormy weather and we had to reconnect, have a bit of a time out. We're back. So my question was, Mark, um, what do we do with those really small patients? And they might have a break, but we don't need to do anything too fancy with them. Yeah, that's right, Brendan. We can uh, we can just set them up in a suitable cage that encourages rest, um, and particularly for those non-weight-bearing fractures, maybe a wing fracture, um, adequate pain relief. And I often like the you know the tubs that you can the plastic tubs, the opaque plastic tubs. It's often a good idea to shorten the day length too uh, for these birds because in the dark they are more likely just to um to uh take it a little bit easy and often two or three weeks for these very small patients in that sort of environment will be enough to settle the fracture down excellent and what do we do as far as um do you want to describe the external coaptation methods we I will that we do use external coaptation and I know you spent some time at Healesville and there's a very famous study of uh, kookaburras that went through the wild kookaburras that went through uh, Healesville Sanctuary's uh, wildlife rescue and rehabilitation veterinary work 
and it was read that study was really interesting in that for shoulder fractures uh, which these birds largely had there was no significant dis- difference in outcomes between uh, a surgical in uh, surgical reduction and fixation and uh, external coaptation and the external coaptation that was used in this case was the figure of eight bandage now figure of eight bandage is one that goes around the body in front of one wing behind the other wing around behind one wing around in front of the other and bandages the wing to the body so that it can't move a little bit like a you know a, a uh, shoulder, if where a human has a clavicle fracture and their arm is resting in a sling, figure eight bandages serve the same purpose. There are other external coaptation uh, devices. I often use a modified Robert Jones bandage. I call it modified because a uh, Robert Jones bandage would normally be compressed cotton wool or some material similar held compressed by a final external elastic bandage but in a modified one I might include you know often include uh, things like uh, popsicle paddle pop sticks uh, maybe a piece of wire maybe some fiberglass arranged to act as a splint so the the uh, incorporated splinting material modifies the Robert Jones bandage to yes. be more effective Yes, so I think they had they ended up producing a couple of um, research papers regarding um, using bandaging versus versus um, intervention, surgical intervention with those markers. And yeah, it was quite it was quite dramatic the difference between those um, results there, Mark, um, suggesting as you said that the bandaging technique um, was was much more successful in in resulting in a bird that was. Um, Released, uh, yes, yes. Now, let's jump into some of those internal <laughs> fixation techniques. Having said, said that, what sort of um, <laughs> processes can we uh, and techniques and equipment can we use, Mark? What sort of gear do we need? Well, you, largely, you can use the same sort of gear as you know a small animal, as as long as it's size appropriate and. These days, where when I first started doing this stuff, there just wasn't the plates to apply to many of our smaller patients. But and there are companies making those plates now, and and yeah, there's a there's a lot of opportunity to use those plates to obtain rapid, rigid internal fixation and thereby facilitate healing. You can also use pins and wires in the in the um, you know, the typical sorts of circumstances that you would use them elsewhere. So uh, certainly the standard sorts of internal fixation devices are all applicable. Probably my favourite though, and the most favourite because I get the most success with it and I uh, uh, use it most frequently is uh, the hybrid fixer tour. So it adopts the uh, opposition to bending forces by using um, an intramedullary pin which exits um, either proximally or distally, bends around through 180 degrees to 90 degree turns and then acts as the external um, frame for 
uh, some cross pins, which then prevent uh, rotational forces. And this combination of external uh, fixator mixed with an internal pin, a hybrid fixator, yes. uh, seems to work really well with birds. Now, what's the what's different and what's the same with the actual healing process, the time period, and um, any tips or tricks what to look out for as far as potential complications? Look, I think the key thing to say here is that um, that the healing process in birds uh, is often just a little bit quicker in, and that sort of um, uh, makes intuitive sense that a animal that's going to want to fly to escape its predators is going to want to heal up maybe a little bit quicker um, than than one that's not going to fly. So um, sometimes as quick as two weeks, maybe as long as five weeks, even six weeks uh, for the recovery, the healing of a fracture. The um, rigid fixation, the, the, the fibrous uh, healing, is often done really, really quickly and, and allows removal of external co-optation or internal fixation um, relatively quickly uh, before, even before the whole thing is completely calcified. You do have to be a little bit careful with sequestra. The bones of birds don't have as generous an intramedullary blood supply, so the blood supply is uh, is largely um, made up of those blood vessels on the external, the periosteal surface, and even those might be, you know, there's not a lot of tissue over many of the sites where these fractures occur, and so the blood supply can very easily be compromised to some of the fracture fragments. And in comminuted fractures, I very frequently end up with uh, devitalized fracture fragments that um, can end up being uh, sequester and, and interfere with uh, healing. So just making a very good assessment of the viability of the bone is a good thing to do, particularly if you're um, opening that up, because even very, very atraumatic surgery is going to add to the compromised blood supply and, and make it a little bit less likely that a sequester will make the distance. You also have to be a bit careful of fibrosis. And this is one of those things where the normal six to eight week period that a, a dog or a cat might go through, that might be well too long for a wing fracture in a bird. And uh, it's very common for that patagial membrane, that sort of bit that sits in front of the elbow and acts as a leading edge for the wing, helps cut through the air, <clears throat> that patagial membrane, um, very often if the wing's held closed for too long, um, it will fibrose in that closed position and the wing might heal, the bone might heal, but we still might not have a functional wing. So just being aware of fibrosis and uh, making sure that we yes. remove bandages at an appropriate time is a good thing to do. Yes, and I presume you're you're educating the the carers and or the owners of these birds about um, some physiotherapy aspects as well post bandage or pin hardware removal. Of course, it's one of the the um, the really cool things 
about uh, once the birds, are, particularly tame birds, uh, if you, uh, you know, just drop your, if they're resting on your hand and you drop your hand quickly two or three centimetres, they'll do a half little flap to maintain their balance. And, um, and that, in some instances, is enough uh, physical therapy to, in, to start to encourage them to use those things. But you're exactly right. We often tailor a physical therapy plan after we've got the healing to make sure that they've maintained the full range of movements. Now, let's talk about the um, elephant in the room, Mark. Amputation, do we do that? And we when definitely... would it be indicated? Well, the, the thing I always say about amputation is that um, there are situations where it's not always available in um, in a bipedal animal as a suitable salvage procedure, and, and probably things like ducks are the ones that immediately jump to mind. We've all seen those internet stories of ducks with, uh, with artificial legs, um, but they are exquisitely difficult to manage and rarely work. I know this will come as a surprise to many people. They really work as uh, they would appear to on the internet stories you see. And for most birds, uh, if there is a shift, even a minor shift in weight from one leg to the other, um, then you're going to end. Neither of those legs are designed to carry more than 50% of the bird's weight. And so as soon as they carry a little bit more, you end up with bumblefoot problems or other complications. And so... Many birds we would we would not consider um, amputating. For some parrots, which are obviously stronger and more likely to use their beak to to ambulate, and particularly if there's a, a client who might be able to manage those pressure issues, those bumblefoot issues, we could consider a foot amputation. Yeah. We definitely would think about you know because the wings are not weight-bearing in a pet bird and flight probably isn't absolutely critical, we would consider a wing amputation. But certainly uh, amputations are not as not always available to us as a salvage technique in birds. Well, I was going to pick that apart, but you've <laughs> explained that Brilliantly, Mark, um, as You're always. You're too generous. You've done fantastic with that. Now, um, did we touch on the only other thing I wanted you to, to touch on, or you may have already mentioned it, but perhaps in a tad more detail, um, analgesia? Oh, look, you're right to remind me of this because uh, whether it's those very small finches that we're keeping uh, cage rest for a few weeks or any of the birds that we might uh, apply external coaptation or uh, even surgery, we've got to be very aggressive with multimodal analgesia. We've got to think about the environment that the bird's in, make sure they're comfortable and, and uh, not resting on a hard surface or whatever. Um, but then we've also got to use our pharmaceuticals to minimise the pain that the bird's suffering. And the good thing about that is that analgesia leads to the birds behaving normally. They use the the uh, limb normally, particularly in the period of time after the um, the fixation devices have been removed, and normal blood flow, normal movement, normal nutrition, all those things are much more likely to lead to normal healing 
Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're very, very keen to form a very uh, all-encompassing multimodal pain relief program for these birds. As we are with all of the species, aren't we, Mark? Any, it's a fantastic little summary of an overview, a pocket pocket version of avian orthopedics, Mark. Um, fantastic. Any final comments before before the storm returns? <laughs> the only thing I didn't mention was my my love of the modified Altman splint. So what we do with these is that we might have an anaesthetized bird. We reduce the um, maybe the the tibia tarsus is probably the bone that I would most frequently use this. Um, in the classic Altman splint, you would uh, um, put some bandage around the reduced fracture and then put tape over uh, one side and then tape to the adhesive surface with another piece of tape on the other side and and obviously have a slightly flexible bandage that um, uh, holds the the fracture in position. We modify that a little bit in that we uh, often use cohesive bandage and infiltrate it with um, methyl methacrylate, you know, super glue. Yep. And that combination forms a nice little uh, uh, cast, rigid cast around the fracture. And and you do have to be a little bit careful because the coflex, the cohesive bandage is so thin, once you make it very rigid, it can cut the bird. But if you make the allowances for the top to be funnel-shaped and flexible and the rest of the, uh, the bandage is... Um, is uh, nice and rigid in the sh normal shape, the birds adapt to it very, very well. And it's my favourite little thing to make a little birdie cast out of a modified Altman splint. Birdie cast, Mark. Yes. I'm trying to picture that. A little birdie cast, an Altman splint, the Mark splint. What a <laughs> fantastic idea. I think with that, we'll get out of here and we'll talk to you all next week. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time